0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of UK environmental policy brought to you by ENDS Report. I'm James Ajapon Parsons. In this week's episode, we're covering the Labour Party conference. No wonky bananas per se, but what exactly is the opposition promising to build heading into the next election? We'll find out. For this week's deep dive, we have the pleasure of hearing from Steve Olmerod. Professor of Water Ecology at Cardiff University and Deputy Chair of Welsh Environment Watchdog, Natural Resources Wales. So let's get to it folks, as we explore this week's eco chamber. It's all build, build, build at the Labour Party conference this week. Joining me live from their conclave is ENDS Reports news editor, Pippa Neal. Pippa, it's Tuesday afternoon at the time of this recording. What's the mood like at Labour Party HQ?
1: Yeah, there's lots of buzz. So I've literally just finished watching Keir Starmer's speech. Um, And I mean, there's lots to digest, which I'm sure we'll kind of be writing and talking about over the next few days and weeks. But, you know, he mentioned widespread planning reforms, plans to build 1.5 million homes, plans for these new towns. um, And there seemed like quite a strong commitment to climate action. So, yeah, the mood is quite exciting, although it was quite dramatic when um, the protester threw glitter over him. Um, yeah, that was a little bit dramatic to watch.
0: What happened? Say that again.
1: Uh, so he was, just before we did his speech, a protester came on. I'm not sure who they kind of represented, um, but they threw glitter over him and he kind of quickly was, the protester was quickly pulled off and, yeah, Keir Starmer had to carry on. So that was a bit dramatic.
0: A sparkly starmer, then.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> what have been the highlights for you? Uh,
1: so, I mean, there's been lots going on in the, the kind of fringe events of the conference. Um, and it's been kind of interesting to learn a little bit more about these plans for Labour's new um, climate and nature tests, which would run through policy making. Um, so, on Monday, I was at an event, and Alex Sobel, who is a former shadow defence minister, said that under kind of, when he was in the department, they were potentially looking at using the National History Museum's Biodiversity Intact Index as a measure for this test. Although I know that tests heard on Sunday that the new deaf secretary Steve Reed said that they're planning to review this. So it's all a bit up in the air, which I think is a bit of a kind of metaphor, really, for the state of the environmental policy at this conference. I mean, uh, there was a reshuffle within Labour only a few weeks ago, so it does feel like a lot of the kind of Death fresh, Shadow team are still getting to grips with their briefs.
0: And what are you up to next? Who are you off to see?
1: Uh, so I've got an event next, which is organised by the Wildlife and Countryside Link. Um, it doesn't actually say who's there, so I'm just going to go down for half an hour. And then um, after that, there's another talk with Steve Reed. so that should be quite interesting.
0: Okay, Pippa, thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy.
1: Thank you. See you later.
0: I'm joined now in the studio by N's Features Editor, Tess Colley, who was also at the Labour Conference in Liverpool. Tess, what were some of your take-homes from the conference?
2: Well, I think for me, having had a few hours back now and thinking about it, the big take-home was that Labour's definitely fleshed out its climate and Kind of energy policy proposals, and because it, there's often an accusation made at Labour that you know they haven't got any ideas, um, but they have, they have got ideas. The big example is what Keir Starmer has said about uh, massive, it seems, planning reforms to boost house building and energy building. Um, the other take home for me is that the potential impact of all these very well developed plans on the environment more broadly is much less developed, and there could likely be a, a clash down the road.
0: So some of those housing figures that uh, Starmer has announced suspiciously similar to the Conservative Party pledge. So 1.5 million homes over the next five-year period, if elected, is 300,000 homes a year, which is what the Tories have promised mm. and haven't yet been able to deliver. Well,
2: I mean, I think that it is you have to look at the detail there because they've said Labour have said 1.5 million homes over the next five-year period doesn't mean all of those will be delivered 300,000 per year, which is what the Tories had said they would do and have since weakened. But yes, it's a similar kind of number of houses over a five-year period.
0: (laughs) Do we know how Labour would go about implementing their building programme or some of their plans?
2: So, I mean, in Starmer's speech, he said things like, you know, Labour Labour government will fight the blockers. And this will include the land bankers sitting comfortably on brownfield sites uh, while rents in their communities rise. And it also means looking at the councils who refuse to develop a local plan because they prefer the backdoor deal. So from there, you can infer the kind of policies that might come from it in terms of how they are going to fund it that's that's a kind of different thing and we looking at Rachel Reeves's speech that she made at conference she gave a bit more detail it was more focused on the big push to drive through new green energy infrastructure projects but all of this is about reforms to the planning um regime um and to reform the antiquated planning system she said uh labor would be funding 300 new planning officers which you know, resourcing of, of local authority planning departments is a thing that they are always talking about. So that's been welcomed. And as well as an urgent review of all national policy statements and a fast track planning route for priority infrastructure projects, which includes things like battery factories, laboratories and 5G infrastructure. So those are some details there that, that we do have.
0: Rachel Reeves said that the Conservative Party itself was the thing getting in the way of house building. But to give them their dues, that's not strictly true is it
2: <laughs> i mean well not entirely the conservative party you know they have built some houses um in the the conservative party oversaw i've got here 178,010 homes completed in in, two, in 2022 in england which was the highest figure since 1989 um but that is far lower than that 300,000 figure that we mentioned um, and you know, it, it's, that's barely half of that, that target. And that number isn't particularly record breaking anyway, even though the Tories like to you know talk about, they like to point to that. Obviously that, that was a, a high number because uh, it's dwarfed by what came before it in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, in 1968, a high of more than 350,000 homes were built. So
0: right, it all so depends
2: on where you put your time frame. What
0: else do we know about Starmer's vision?
2: So I think the thing that really stood out for me and I think for Will, for a lot of people uh is what he said about labor building new towns this is this was a big part of his conference speech um that you know labor aren't going to just tweak things at the side when it comes to housing new towns are going to be built things that have, this was an idea that a legacy labor governments have done places like Stevenage and Crawley were new towns that were built to, to house people how is that going to happen now and in are increasingly busy bit of, uh, Island, um, Brownfield, apparently Brownfield, 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 Brownfield first, at least. Um, and this, I kind of went to quite a few events while I was up there about the housing crisis and about how Labour actually plan to, to do this turbocharging and where, um, because while they, you know, say that it will be a Brownfield first, the shadow housing minister, um, said an event that, while well, that is the case. You can't meet the UK's housing need just by just on Brownford. You need to release some green belt too. Um, but that needs to be done in a strategic way. And I think that's what's a bit of a nuance that's important here because Starmer made the point in his speech you know, we're not here, to, we're not about tearing up the green belt. And I think that because that is something that the Tories have levelled against them, uh, it's going to be strategic. And Matthew Pennycook, the shadow housing minister, he talked about, you know, if some places it will be releasing it, but in other places we might build on it or enhance it. I'm um, to say building it, but in other places we might extend it or enhance it. It's not It's not going to be just about building on it. Um, but it's this strategic plan. I don't know how developed that is amongst the Labour Party at the moment, but the idea is that you won't just be haphazard. That's the, the word the Shadow Hazard Minister used. It will be looking at the whole scheme and choosing you know, where where you build and where you don't. And other, the shadow and environment minister talked about a land use framework being developed. So all these things are sounding good, but there's a lot less detail there.
0: There is a strategy. We just don't know the strategy.
2: Certainly, or at least certainly not going to tell you what it is.
0: No. Does Labour know the strategy? We don't know.
2: If Labour's listening, please do get in touch.
0: On energy... There were some quite striking claims made at the conference. Can you run us through some of the things we now know about Labour's forthcoming energy strategy?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of the stuff had already been announced that we heard this week. Um, I mean, GB Energy is the flagship policy for Labour's energy revolution, which is going to be the publicly owned energy company to be based in Scotland. And the Shadow Climate and Net Zero Secretary Ed Miliband Said you know if they win the next election, the, the party will double onshore wind, treble solar power, and quadruple offshore wind uh, generation. At a talk I went to, that he was that he was also quite keen to talk about the investment plans Labour has to to put money into our ports. And he's like, this is one of the things that we, one of the policies we have that you know no one. No, no one seems to acknowledge that we have. So, you know, I think there might be a sore spot. Uh, <laughs> so, Miliband wants what, en- energy generation in ports? No, it's, it's more that he said part of the reason we rene- the renewable energy sector has not been able to take off in this country is because we've not done what other countries have done, is we've not invested in our ports. Because how can you get these massive turbines in right. if our ports can't handle it? And so, you know, they, they, he said that Labour, you know, they've, Worked out the money they want to put aside uh, for investment in ports. I mean, that's quite a small point, I know, amongst this that- much bigger thing, but it's these sort of things which I think show they actually, have actually thought it through. Yeah. And I, I can see how that's a hard
0: policy to sell to a general audience. Yes. Um, However, ENDS was there. <laughs> ENDS was there, folks. Um, and GB Energy, you mentioned. Yes. Uh, great British Energy. This is that, that plan announced last year at the last conference, Labour conference, about. Uh, an EDF style, you mm. know, energy uh, company, uh, yes. owned by UKPSE. Okay, yeah. but that was reaffirmed, so we
2: know that, that was is- reaffirmed. I mean, something that was was new, and Rachel Reeves talked about in her speech was this plan to rewire labour, um, which feeds into all the planning reforms we've been talking about. Um, this is about you know build faster and cheaper, as you said, opening up new grid construction to competitive tendering. and But this is all part of, if you're going to build new towns, they need to have cables. Mm. So it all comes together in this in this kind of new vision mm. for building in the country. But rewire labour is hard to say, but is a thing that they
0: want, it, they to want, want it to be said. Yeah, And I mean, it is a huge problem with offshore wind connections, um, which, you know, it's all well and good saying you want a triple, quadruple renewables and offshore wind being being one of the big players in the UK renewable scene. But if you can't connect them on land, you you are stuffed.
2: Yeah. So big I mean, in Suffolk, isn't it? Yeah. There's coffee's patch. Yes. <laughs> it, and it, I
0: mean, again, it's not necessarily a policy that folks want to consider, but maybe that, you know, they're trying to get it get it into that planning policy arc, mm. um, which, yeah, maybe, maybe they'll have more success um, than previous governments if elected.
2: If elected
0: what other things did we hear from labour leaders on environmental policy
2: um well it all gets a bit vague here i'm afraid james um went to lots of events as has pippa we've been talking lots um and especially when it's one to do with wider environmental policy or nature water waste if the minister if any of the shadow ministers show up which i think on the waste events they've been pretty sparse um you get a lot of you know we're working on it um you know give us a bit of time cuz steve reed's not been in the job very long uh on nature what we do have is steve reed said that um he hopes to have a nature manifesto by the time they go to the next general election but basically he said i acknowledge we don't currently really have much thinking around nature so perhaps refreshing honesty depending on your outlook uh, but it does show how how undeveloped that their thinking is on this, whilst thinking on planning and energy is so far ahead. Um and perhaps that's that's where a potential clash could come down on the down down the road. Starmer said, to, you know, in his speech, uh, we are a party that we really fights fights for the environment. But um if you're thinking of I suppose nature very much later on in the process, is that maybe already too late? I don't know. We'll right. have to see. And if there is that
0: you know, build, build, build mindset, how will that butt up or work with, you know, nature um, restoration, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. On the shadow deaf secretary, Steve Reed, what was your impression about him?
2: Um, well, I think, I mean, he's only been in the job for three weeks, but I, what well, I gather from speaking to sort of other people and industry and NGOs, um, they're all, I think they're generally quietly, quite pleased with him. Things seem to be happening and on the engagement front. And I think this is where he is standing out for them. He's been really good. He's spoken to, I guess it's by comparison to the previous, uh, Shadow Defra team. I think Jim, Aman didn't really engage at all with the green NGOs. Um, even the really, really big ones, the RSPB and the national trust and, and those, those types, um, But, you know, they've all had meetings already with Steve Reed. So that shows a different sort of uh, approach, I suppose. Um, And it's not just, obviously, it's not just uh, the green groups. The NFU seem pretty positive. That's the National Farmers Union. Like everyone, they want to see more details from Steve Reed because he said the environmental land management schemes, which is a big change coming for farming and farming subsidy and how land is managed uh, in the agricultural kind of world. Um, he kind of confirmed Labour doesn't want to tear it up, which welcomed by most people, um, but warned that aspects of it weren't working and they were looking at it. So things could be coming to change. I don't think he knows what those are yet. Um, so, But he wants to look at it, which I suppose most politicians would do if they just got into a role. But... Um, You get that feeling that they want, they want, he said it, some parts of it are financially unviable. So that's what we'll be looking at. But again, we just don't really know what. Um, So I think broadly, he seems to be a good politician. He says the right things. He's made a good first impression, but you know, once he's over the kind of the new boy sort of effect, um, it'll be like, okay, give us some answers.
0: So some things Steve Reed doesn't know what else do we not know or didn't hear
2: from the labor party at mm. large i think one of the things that was picked up by a few people was um that the that 28 billion a year um on green investment until 2030 that was a kind of pledge that labor had made before they'd already weakened it a bit by saying um, scaled it back uh, to say that it would now build up to an annual 28 billion uh, pound plan by halfway through the first parliament this was one of their big pledges last year at conference and this year just wasn't in it so maybe they don't want it to be front of mind for anyone they've not gone back on it but it wasn't there and uh the other thing we just didn't hear a word about in, in starmer's speech was hs2 uh which was all anyone seemed to be talking about at least in the media um last week at the conservative party conference he did say and has said and i think more than one interview now um, that he can't promise that that um, Labour will kind of commit to rebuild, even though the party itself has said it wants to see that Manchester leg built.
0: So that's interesting. Labour members at the conference voted in favour of building that um, Birmingham-Manchester link and East Midlands Parkway. But that doesn't mean Jack... <laughs> to be specific Jack. to be specific that doesn't mean anything <laughs> to Labour leaders is that
2: right yes okay it's not binding in any way um, I suppose it's a way for the party to say this is what the, the mass want uh, I think the the Labour Party also voted for a motion to um, nationalise energy right. um, that too I think the uh, the shadow cabinet already sort of boshed it back, but not, not binding.
0: It's time now for our moment of the week as The Ends Report is hiring an assistant editor. So why not come and work with me and Tess? Tess, what's the role? How do we apply? What's going on?
2: Yeah. So this is, I think it's a really interesting role uh, to come and work with ENDS uh, and me on all our long form content. So that's kind of you know, the kind of more in-depth stuff and what sometimes get called special reports um, that go really in-depth into particular subjects in the environmental sector. Um we want someone to come and help us uh, commissioning other writers, uh, editing the work they, they send in, um, but also writing a bit yourself and um, contributing to to everything Ends does uh, at large. If you've got some data skills, all the better. We we want a bit of that. Um, so that's that that's kind of that's the bulk of the role. Uh, but you'd be basically you wouldn't have any specific kind of area of the environment you'd be looking at. You'd be working across all of it. So that's um, I don't know river pollution, biodiversity loss, waste, climate, uh, you name it. You'd have a bit of that data kind of focus. Uh, but be a really broad role and potential to really get into the areas you're interested in. So awesome. that's what it is um and you can apply online uh go to the Haymarket website and uh, look for assistant editor with ENS report. uh the app- there isn't a deadline per se on on the job ad, but get your you uh, get your uh, get your applications in because we'll close it once we've you know got a good, got a good load of candidates. Uh, so yeah, if, you're, if you think this sounds like you, feel free to get in touch with me uh, if you've got any questions. Um, and I look forward to seeing all your applications, listeners. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> Time for our deep dive as I caught up with water ecologist extraordinaire, Professor Steve Ormerod of Cardiff University, who also serves on the Board of Natural Resources Wales as Deputy Chair. Steve was a fantastic guest with some great insights on water quality and the direction of environment policy. He undertook his PhD on water quality and insects in the early 80s. So I began by asking him about what he's witnessed since then. Take a listen. So let's talk water then. From way back when, when you qualified your PhD in water quality to now, can you give us sort of an assessment of where you see water quality in the UK?
3: Well, it's a really interesting debating point, actually, because we know there is very significant concern generally about the state of England and Welsh rivers in particular. And I, I, I think it's tremendously important that people are taking an interest and they want to see the quality of rivers fixed. If you look at English rivers in particular, only 14% are in good ecological status, about 40% in Wales, about 60% in Scotland. But the trajectory that we can see from um, biological data from the 1990s onwards is one of actually general improvement, particularly in urban areas. Now, there were coming, of course, those rivers from quite a low base uh, affected by poorly performing wastewater treatment industry, but a really significant piece of legislation, the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive, then led to substantial investment that then started to improve rivers. If you look at organisms like invertebrates, clean water organisms have progressively recovered in particular urban rivers. Now, the story becomes more complicated more recently because at different geographical scales from England and Wales right across into Europe, that recovery has been plateauing, we think, for about 10 years. And that plays out also, a recent paper in Nature illustrated it was the same story in mainland Europe as it is here. So the question now is why that stalling, why that flatlining has occurred? And we're interested in in, in doing more to understand that. There are issues we know with things like CSOs, uh, which I think we can talk some more about. We know that there are concerns about emerging contaminants, microplastics. We, we, for example, find every other insect in rivers in South Wales is contaminated by plastics. We know they're passing through food webs. We have a particular interest in things like pharmaceuticals, which could be problematic. And then also, I think we've got to understand the geographical difference between what's happening in urban rivers and what's happening in the rural river environment and you know as you know we have some um really substantial concerns about exceedance in particular of phosphorus targets in some of our special areas of conservation uh, in
0: Wales in, in in our case so there's been this sort of renewed or new interest in water policy and sewage perhaps so there's more people focused on this subject recently so it might give the impression that things are really bad but they have got better since the 90s is what you're saying Again, it depends on where you look. It depends on the measures you
3: take. So if, if for example, you're looking at sanitary pollutants from um, wastewater treatment works, uh, things like ammonia have declined, phosphorus has declined. It appears as though biological, uh, biochemical oxygen demands have been declining. So the trends, and I, and I stress, in urban rivers have been consistent with the kind of reductions in organic loadings but but as I think it's really important to point out that has plateaued since about twenty ten onwards, so we've come from a um a baseline where clearly many of our rivers were seriously degraded, and this was a post industrial set of circumstances we were looking at, and I think one of the key things now is that we're looking at a a, a kind of changing cocktail. The nature of river pollution is changing, but but very clearly also we've got to get on top of and understand um, some of the other aspects associated with wastewater infrastructure, in particular combined sewer overflows.
0: Can I just talk to you about some of those rural rivers and urban rivers? and the why in particular, which I I know is a river of interest to you. It was your PhD research topic, I understand. Can you just tell us a bit about the health of the Y when you studied it back in the 80s, the health of it now and where it's gone wrong or, you know, what's kind of where we're at with the Y? Mm.
3: Well, I mean, the, the why when, when I did my PhD, was responsible for uh, probably 25% of all the rock-cult salmon in England and Wales, six to 8,000 per year. The populations of salmon in in the Y and elsewhere have crashed. Uh, The the real kind of major focus of interest in the wise on phosphorus concentrations, certainly where wastewater treatment used to be the major source, for example, downstream of Ferryford, but there is a, a shift in the distribution of phosphorus loadings from what is now probably about 25 20% of phosphorus loadings coming out of wastewater treatment but about 70% coming out of agriculture um, the, the the concerns that people have is that the phosphorus targets which are pretty stringent targets more stringent than they used to be are exceeded and as a consequence of that exceedance you know that the, the 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 narrative the suspicion is that that has driven things like algal blooms. It's potentially led to the loss of things like uh, ranunculus beds, which were clearly very important to invertebrates, to salmonids also. But again, I I think this is an area where uh, if we are to act appropriately, we've got to understand exactly what the source attribution of that phosphorus looks like. So at the moment, it looks as though it's about 70% agriculture as I indicated. which we think is poultry? Is it majority? I mean, there's some fantastic work being done by Lancaster University looking at different sources of, of phosphorus in the Y in general. If we start to break down what, what their data tell us, it, it appears that, that phosphorus in general is being overloaded into the Y catchment. Some of it is, is things like grassland phos, phosphate applications, quite a lot of it is animal manures, and that includes sheep and um, cattle as well as poultry the exceedance appears to be about 3,000 tonnes per annum. If you look generally across rivers in England and Wales, roughly usually uh, phosphorus loadings that come out of agricultural land track the loadings that go in, but at a lower rate, it's about 10%. So it it makes good sense that that if if phosphates are being overloaded onto agricultural land, then there is a risk that phosphates will all Also begin to to, to leach and leach out. Um, The the, the complicating factor is about understanding and attributing that phosphorus loading to the different parts of agriculture. Poultry is clearly a significant component, but also we've got to see it alongside those those other bits of agriculture as well.
0: In England, there's been uh, a focus on reducing nutrient load, nitrates and phosphates from very highly protected areas, uh, SACs, SSSIs, Ramsar sites, through the nutrient neutrality policy, which our listeners will be very well acquainted with on this podcast. Um, and specifically, it, it's targeted house builders from increasing nutrient load into these protected waterways from new development. What's your assessment on on you know England's way of dealing with nutrient pollution at the minute? So the
3: current circumstances that that things have come, we're not at that point as yet. And if if those changes are made, then it appears it would have to come back as a as a, as a new bill, uh, perhaps in a new term of parliament. And and the the kind of intention is to make uh, wastewater from housing exempt from consideration in habitat regulation. And on the back of that, there is the suggestion there will be a new package of environmental uh, management measures, uh, expanding investment in nutrient mitigation schemes, accelerating this idea of full site restoration through what are called protected area strategies. So so the direction of travel uh, isn't entirely negative, but if we were to relax those controls, On wastewater, I think it would make the job of Natural England and Environment Agency really quite challenging of working within whatever government policy looks like. Uh, In in Wales, we, we do things slightly differently. So we have a range of different special areas of conservation that are exceeding their phosphorus targets. So the Dee, uh, the Tevi, uh, the Clevi, the Usk, the y dominantly rivers in the mid and south of Wales. And, and our position really is one in which the First Minister has engaged very substantially in the whole debate. Uh, we now have something called the, the, the failing SAC river uh, catchment attachment plan. It's talking about issues such as government governance and oversight. So we brought into being a range of nutrient uh, management boards that operate in the different catchments. There is an emphasis on rolling out nature-based solutions, ways of intersecting phosphorus before it reaches river catchments, riparian wetlands, expansion of of riparian woodlands, if we can fund it appropriately. Um, Very clearly, there is a need for all of the different sectors involved in, in phosphorus release to work better in a coordinated way together. That includes the agricultural sector as well as the water companies. So working constructively with the agricultural sector, sustainable farming schemes, reducing P applications, in particular where catchment soils are already saturated. And then then I I think also there is the whole business of the way the planning system works. Uh, So at the moment, we, we have pretty much a, a moratorium on uh, new poultry units in particular being um consented uh, but but you know e- equally there will be some instances where new housing Actually can be accommodated within the kind of nutrient budgets that we have. So 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 in Wales, you know, I would like to suggest that our approach has been effective, it's been joined up, and we're certainly going as as kind of Wales PLC, as, as Team Wales, in the right direction. I don't want to say that Wales is leading the way, it's very often things, I think something that Wales people from Wales say, but I, I think we are we are in a place where we are taking action and things are likely to improve.
0: On taking action, this year NRW actually reduced Welsh Water's company rating of three stars to two. I'm just curious to know, do you think sticks work when it comes to regulating the water industry? Or is it sort of a status thing, are they trying to sort of push Welsh Water into upping their game? Regulation is an interesting
3: thing, isn't it? Because, you know, very often the call is for more prosecution. But if we reach the point at which prosecution is taking place, actually we failed with regulation. So so regulation is always a balance between incentivizing, rewarding and exemplifying good behavior, but discouraging inappropriate behavior. Um, And and I think one of the other things that people aren't always aware of is the array of regulatory instruments that are used as what you've called the stick. So regulators like NLW can send cautions, they can uh, encourage enforcement actions, Penalties sometimes, and I think since 2013, uh, NRW has prosecuted Dura on about 13 different occasions. But the biggest effect that I would suggest we've had is this downgrading of environmental performance to two star. Now that that. A- affects the kind of latitude that Dŵr Cymru has for example in uh, being able to levy investment income what it really reflects is a balance between the number of incidents that occur that Welsh Water we think we're pretty sure are responsible for but also the number of serious incidents that they've responsible been responsible for and I you know if I were a water company that that would hurt me that that, that
0: downgrading and I would very much want to up my game it's interesting because you know wherever you look, water quality is impacted, it seems by humans from every direction. You've got water companies, we've got agriculture. could we Could you just take us through some of those emerging threats, the chemicals, the sources, you know and and potentially some of the solutions of, of what needs to happen in your view?
3: I I mean, absolutely, water quality globally is such a multifaceted set of problems. Uh, And as we've just kind of articulated, there are issues around agriculture, there are issues around uh, combined sewer overflows, there are wastewater treatment issues. Also, even domestically, we we don't always get things right. So the evidence across uh, England and Wales is about 5% of households misconnect their foul sewage to surface drains And that, that in some respects is, is, is our own kind of domestic responsibility. So one of the things I think we've got to be better at recognizing in the water quality domain is that it is multifaceted. It is all of us who are responsible. And I think we've got to work together across all sectors to ensure that we are properly protecting our surface waters. You know, let's not forget how incredibly important water is to us. Something like 70% of our drinking water is being drawn at some point from river environments. We all depend on high quality water. Um, There is always an additional treatment cost where water quality is declining either in wastewater or or drinking water treatment. You know, and, and, and then you know there is the cost to the environment, the potential impacts on biological diversity. I I I grew up, I became interested in um, water and river ecology as a child, watching Atlantic salmon migrating into the River Ribble, and it was just spectacular. And I was driven throughout my my entire career. To want to know more to protect these these absolutely gems that we have in the river environment, and when they decline and we think they're declining for a whole range of global right the way down to local problems, you know, it it it, it t- t- I just find it tremendously sad, but but equally we've got to get on top of the solutions.
0: Can you just outline some of those problems for us then? So we've been talking about phosphates and nitrates, but that's not the only issue with water quality in England and Wales. Can you just take us through some of the chemicals, some of the ecological problems for our listeners?
3: One of the things that's apparent to us is that the cocktail of pollutants that affect rivers is changing. And if 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 I go back to the beginning of my career, I I started, for example, looking at problems associated with acid rain. We had something like half of all the entire river length of twenty four thousand kilometers in Wales impacted by acidification and acid rain. And and we fixed that problem by appropriate europe worldwide action in lots of instances to reduce sulfur emissions i i think also from the point of view of uh, of, of poorly performing wastewater treatment regulation has helped us to move forward but at the same time we have you know these 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 developing concerns around what what we call emerging contaminants. So plastics, for example, um, we think that river birds like the dipper in South Wales are ingesting hundreds of fragments of plastic every day, which is contained within their prey. They're in, inadvertently feeding that material to their chicks. Um, We know that we're also grappling with legacy problems, PCBs, PBD, flame retardants, the kind of PFAS group of chemicals. In Wales, our work on riverbirds like the Dipper, for example, shows us that the eggs of dippers in the urban South Wales valleys are more contaminated by PDE flame retardants than any passerine ever measured anywhere else on earth. And we, we, we think also there is evidence that they are impacted as a consequence. So there's a bit of evidence about developmental ab- abnormality, altered thyroid function. Now that, that, that group of legacy chemicals sits alongside a new emerging realisation that things like pharmaceuticals are also problematic to us. You know, any any drug that any of us ever take for any kind of condition, whether it be blood pressure, whether it be uh, medicines associated with um, uh, epilepsy, whether it's things that we take uh, to control our behaviour and mood, they, they run the risk of finding their way through sewage treatment work, through CSOs, through misconnected sewers into surface waters, we're in the middle of an investigation now um, comparing the concentrations of those chemicals in the urban river valleys of South Wales with rural rivers. In, in our most recent assessment this summer, we've identified about 150 different chemicals that are present. This runs the whole range from uh, human pharmaceuticals right the way through to veterinary chemicals. People have been quite concerned recently, for example, about um, the things we give to our domestic animals, dogs and cats and rabbits, flea treatments, imidacloprid, fipronil-based compounds. Which are hugely, hugely toxic. At the concentrations that they occur in rivers, it appears that they are reaching levels where they, 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 they could be contributing to this changing cocktail of chemicals. And at the moment, the way our um, wastewater treatment systems are managed and regulated, those chem- compounds very often are not not really um, easily accommodated our current regulatory regime. There's a bit of a difference in the way that Europe is moving at the moment in that the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive, which was responsible for that big improvement in, waste, in, in urban wastewater treatment, will be upgraded in Europe so that emerging contaminants begin to figure more prominently in the way that wastewater treatment is regulated. There's a question for us about whether we keep pace with those those European
0: developments. So that brings me on to the solutions. Is that a or the solution to keep up with EU policy? I, I think we've got to look at
3: where we are now. Operating in the way that we do, and you know the solutions to to, to water quality problems are very wide ranging. So they go from a sy- systemic level, you know how we use food, uh, how we use energy, how we use water, how we use and dispose of medicines right the way down to the way we manage catchments, the way we roll out nature-based solutions, the way we manage catchments in a a sustainable way, the way we invest in things like our water treatment technologies and our combined sewer overflow systems. Some of these are very substantial costs. So if, for example, we we, we, we were to try to fix All of the CSOs in Wales, we've got about 2,300 of them. The costs would run into several billions of pounds, you know, thousands of pounds per individual. Um, So quite clearly, our responses have got to be targeted by evidence that shows us where we can get the biggest gain for the action we take. CSOs are an interesting example. They're responsible probably for about 4% of water framework directive failures in Wales. So the question arises, Is it better to invest in CSOs and certainly where they're contributing to water WFD failures? It is. But if the, if the solution, if the biggest gain comes out of fixing poorly performing wastewater treatment works, then clearly that should be our solution. If agriculture is the problem, then appropriate investment, appropriate rewards for. Good behaviour on the part of people who manage land becomes a key solution. So this is a a multifaceted problem with multifaceted solutions. And we've got
0: to find the right optimum balance. I'm curious to know your position as an academic giving the science and your position involved with policy where it's kind of delivering the science and humans either get in the way or join in. Have you, do you find that there is a conflict there when it comes to addressing these water challenges? Not sure why they would conflict. My academic work gains enormously from the
3: perspective that comes from being involved, not just with natural resources. Well, you know, I, I was previously chairman of the RSPB, for example. I was previously president of the Chartered Institute of water, of, of uh, Ecology and Environmental Management, being in the public domain with a public role tremendously improves the, the, you know, the, the work that I can do as an academic. And I would like to believe that, that my understanding as an academic and, and the research that we've done revealing water quality problems, appraising the kind of steps we can take, I, I would like to believe that that helps NRW as a regulator and indeed the other organizations that I've worked with. So I, I think there, there isn't a conflict here. I think there is actually a, an opportunity for um, a, a, you know, mutual support between the roles that I have.
0: Do you think that there is a a position where perhaps natural resources Wales are in a better place because they encompass all of the environment in Wales rather than in England where we have divvied up regulators for different sectors? Do you see? Do you think there's perhaps there's a benefit there?
3: Well, NLW is a a, a very large, complicated organisation uh, because of the spectrum of activities it has. You know, as you know, it brought together what was formerly the Forestry Commission, Environment Agency, Wales Countryside Council for Wales. Uh, it has multiple roles as advisor, uh, planning consultee, regulator, first responder yeah and you know and some of that work quite often i think is overlooked by other people um there are about Somewhere around seven thousand incidents every year in Wales of different types that NRW as a first responder has got to be out sometimes along the blue light services delivering. So 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 it's a complicated organisation and I think its its work is difficult because of that, but also the way we operate I think in Wales has brought very significant opportunity because of the integration of all those different components. So. So we, you know, we, we, we have, again, I don't want to say that Wales is leading the way, but we have legislation such as the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, the Environment Act that brought NRW into being, which really are very, very forward-looking pieces of legislation. And to have an organisation like NRW with an overview for the whole management of natural resources in the round, to me is a significant
0: advantage and a significant opportunity. Can you just take us through that that Wellbeing Act? Because I often hear that that piece of legislation in particular being sort of revolutionary uh, in policy circles. Can you just take take us through that? I think any any organisation, any of us who
3: works. In the environmental sphere has got to be aware of sustainability principles where we think of the needs of the future you know we're good ancestors in many respects to those who come behind us and that that really encourages and I, I would suggest forces us to think in ways that go beyond our own lifetimes or the lifetimes of governments mm. so here is a really very genuine forward looking piece of pieces of legislation it talks about Wales being globally responsible. It talks about Wales with its responsibility to its communities. Uh, it talks about Wales being resilient to all kinds of future changes. Uh, I, I think that's pretty impressive that, that you know, a small country which is big enough to make a difference, but small enough to make it happen, actually illustrates what we can do.
0: I'd like to ask this question uh, to our guests who come on the Eco Chamber um and this for you if you were in charge of water policy what would you do in your first 6 months if you were directing environmental and particularly water policy you have complete complete budget control com- no you have to run it past anyone what would you do
3: 6 months James is nowhere near long enough so the the the, the water quality problems we inherit, go back into the post-industrial phase. Uh, I, I very often give give lectures to my to my students where I begin water quality sections with images of the South Wales, coalfield rivers in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where a lot of our problems stem from. And now we're in a set of circumstances where as we've rehearsed, the problems affecting water are are changing and evolving. So this this is a really complicated set of problems that we are trying to manage. Better catchment management, bigger investment in treatment, slowing water down, ensuring that people also take individual responsibility for what they flush down toilets, how their domestic sewers are connected, you know, education, appropriate action, appropriate investment, understanding, appropriate land management.
0: Steve, thank you very much. What an interesting time to be involved in shaping water policy right now. Listeners, if you know how to fix our water pollution problems, please do email us ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. My thanks to Tess Colley, Pippa Neal and Professor Steve Ormerod for coming on to this week's episode of the EcoChamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.